CID Speaker Series podcast. This week, Gustavo Payan Luna, CID Student Ambassador, will be interviewing Daniel Mejia, Secretary of Security of Bogota, Stephen Dudley, Co-Director of Inside Crime, and Joao Pino de Mello, Lehman Visiting Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. They have just participated on the second session of our Security and Development Seminars, which focused on transnational crime, gangs, guns, drugs, and development in Latin America. Thank you to the three of you for the really interesting panel. Um, my name is Gustavo Payan. As I said, I'm originally from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. This is a fascinating topic for me, both personally and professionally, so I appreciate your time. Uh, so I have a question, as I said, one question for each one of you, and, and the others can chime in uh, or add any thoughts to their other um, questions. So we'll start with you, Stephen. You talked about the importance of institutions in addressing issues of crime and violence. What are, in your perspective, some of the most effective ways to strengthen institutions in the midst of high levels of corruption, which is the topic of the first seminar in this series, and the role that many interest groups play, both formal and informal, in governance. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about that, and if you can elaborate also from your perspective in, in terms of the role of media in this effort of strengthening institutions, that would be great. Okay, yeah, there's really a lot to unpack there, but you know, the question of, of building institutions or capacity building in institutions is the, is the perennial question right now, I think. And in terms of what I've seen work, I would mention two things. One is the ability to uh, create small kernels um, or small teams that can be isolated uh, often from, from other parts of corrupt or larger corrupt institutions and use those as kernels um, or at least starting points to build out uh, the institutions from there. I've seen that have some success in different places as long as these particular teams have independence, they have political support from the top, and often they'll, they'll need international political support. And the other way is, uh, at least in terms of, of successful um, models or, or, or examples that I can think of, is to look for leadership um, and to focus on leadership and develop that leadership and harness that leadership and give that leadership the same type of, of political support and backing that they need. None of this is a, a, is a panacea. You have to do a number of things at the same time, and it's often likened to, you know, fixing an airplane while you're flying it sort of thing. So it's really difficult to know where to start, but those are two places where I've seen, um, I've seen some, some successes. Do you have any examples for the top of your head about successful examples? Well, I'm thinking, uh, for example, in, in Guatemala, there was uh, an attorney general there named Claudia Pasipas, um, who was named to, to an institution that everyone thought had failed and was never going to be successful and, you know, was, was a horrible way of creating justice and, and et cetera, et cetera. She took the existing institution, built out around her trustworthy team, um, several layers of trustworthy teams, really, and, and began to turn around uh, the institution. Nothing about the institution changed. Uh, she certainly had more international support, which I think was critical, uh, but she largely did it because she had the will to do it. It was, 
It was a leadership question, and there were people inside that could do it. So this whole idea that that these are failures just because they're failures um, and that they'll always be failures, I think, is a false premise. So I think she kind of proved that you could take an institution that everyone thought was supposed to fail and really push it towards uh, some successes. Great. In terms of um, the greater effort by law enforcement, and we've seen in Mexico with uh, UNCA Juarez and Honduras more recently in Tegucigalpa and other cities, uh, militarized police, is that, a, is that part of that strategy, trying to, within the larger law enforcement, thinking that militarized police is, you know, can carry out this effort? Well, I think just, and, and just to sort of complete the earlier thought, I think that one of the things about the Claudia situation was the people that who worked with her um, actually are working in all different institutions right now. So all of her team, for example, is now working like sort of, they're working in the Ministry of the Interior. There's another person who's working in the, in the tax collection service. There's another person who's in the international, you know, justice uh, initiative uh, headed up by the UN. So there's, there's, there's that. The question of, of whether or not militarized efforts to deal with these criminal groups is working, I think that that, that is, in essence, a, a, a Band-Aid at this stage. This is not part of a long-term way to deal with really law enforcement problems on a local level. These military police are not trained for this. They do occupy a lot of space, physical space, so they can have an immediate uh, visual impact and often an impact on crime levels. But it's not a long-term solution. So the movement in that direction, I think, is uh, is not necessarily something that represents a, a a way a way out of of a, of a quagmire like like Honduras. And finally, inside crime plays a very important role in keeping people informed. What do you see the role of media in strengthening institutions? Well, they're they're an extra layer of watchdogs, um, and in their best manifestations, they are the you know guard dogs of democracy and the guard dogs of of human rights and the means by which the society at least can hold their officials accountable. Um, in the worst of the scenarios, they are beholden to the powers that be, and they are doing their bidding. Unfortunately, the model uh, for journalism in, in much of the region is often dependent on the very people who they are supposed to be keeping accountable, and that it makes it very difficult for media writ large to do their job. Thank you very much. So let's um, go on to you, um, Daniel. People like Rob Muga have been talking about the importance of understanding cities and thinking of fragile cities versus fragile states uh, and the importance of local government in tackling some of these issues uh, that are affecting citizen security. Given the, uh, your role in Bogota, how do you see that playing in Colombia and Bogota? And if you can talk a little bit about the experience both in Bogota but also in Medellin as it is seen as, a, as an example or a best practice for Latin America. So that tension between local and national efforts. Well, first of all, I think the, the, there is a big difference between policy making at the state level and at the local level. The, the decisions you make are, and the mistakes you make are much more visible at the local level. The results that you get are much faster to be seen uh, in a city like Bogota or Medellin than when you're, for instance, in the Ministry of Defense and you make a decision and that takes a long time to be reflected in, in improving the, the lives of, of many people. I think the common ground between uh, fragile cities and fragile states has to do with 
territorial control, but not uh, in terms of security, but in terms of state presence, health services, education services, uh, social services. And I think we shouldn't talk about fragile cities as a, as a whole, but to what extent governments or local governments have the capacity to have presence in different parts of, of a city. Regarding Medellin and Bogota, I think Medellin has had a series of good local governments for the last 20 years, I think. And in that sense, Medellin has, is, a, is a long way from Bogota from having different kinds of services, security services, uh, health services, education. And I think we have, we have a lot to learn from Medellin on, on having a series of local governments, even if they don't agree with, with each other. If one government, one mayor doesn't agree with the previous one, but at least they continue to have good policies and good decision making. And that's unfortunate in Bogota because we had a series of, of local governments which were I think Bogotá was gover governed by ideologists for, for a long time. People who actually made decisions more based on, on ideological positions and not on administering a city, which is what uh, a local mayor or, or a local governor has to do with a, with a city, which is a public administration issue. It's not, it has nothing to do with ideology. or, or you, have to, you can have a plan for a city and a vision of a city, but you cannot govern a city with, with just ideology and rhetoric. Thank you. And in terms of, as, as you talk about the vision for the city, something that I, I don't think it was necessarily addressed explicitly during the conversation, but we believe, or many believe, that is important is urban planning, mm -hmm. uh, specifically crime prevention through environmental design and some of these efforts. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the, uh, what are your views on the importance of urban planning uh, in terms of infrastructure? And if you can, because I remember when I was in Ciudad Juarez back in, you know, in, in the early 2000s, and we brought, or the city brought people from Bogota mm -hmm. to implement the ciclovías because uh -huh. it was a huge success that mm -hmm. brought about social cohesion and increased the social capital. So I was seen as a strategy to address some of these issues. What are your views on urban planning, urban infrastructure in relation to crime prevention? Well, first of all, I think it, most of the crimes that occur in a city have to do with the quality of the public infrastructure. If a, if a place is dirty, is not is it has no lights, is uh, under bad conditions. That's a that's a place that invites criminals to to work there. So that's one of the big issues that we are confronting, which is how do we manage to make security policies sustainable? I think that's through urban planning to have more parks, more soccer courts, a public space that is for the citizens and not for people who invade the, the public spaces. And I think that's where the mayor of Bogota has been. He's an expert in worldwide on urban planning, on imagining a city for the future. And I think it's crucial for security conditions. Security is not a matter of having police control over the whole city. At least sustainable security policies have more to do with the capacity of citizens to enjoy public spaces without the fear of being attacked. Thank you. Joel, um, during the conversation earlier, you guys were talking about uh, the cost of violence, uh, specifically from the economic standpoint. And you mentioned that a lot of the costs has been, you know, have been transferred to producing and, and transit countries. Um, what about the um, cost of local crime, both in terms of these you know, large-scale organizations, both gangs and drug trafficking organizations and cartels, but also the petty crime that happens every day that goes sometimes unnoticed? What is the cost on the economic and social side of, of this sort of local crime? 
just to, to put a little bit in, in context, first the, the issue of uh, transferring costs uh, southward. I think that applies to a few countries in a few situations. I think the, some of the costs that were borne by the Colombians during Plan Colombia, or the most visible part of Plan Colombia, are uh, pretty obvious. And the costs that were borne by Mexico under Calderon's uh, strategy, they, they were pretty visible as well. For other parts of Latin America that are not involved in producing and uh, transiting drugs, it's all uh, home-brewed, so you cannot blame it on, on drug consumption in, in San Francisco, right? And that pertains more to your question, I guess. For Latin America, we have good estimates of the costs of violence, but in terms of homicides. Uh, I don't think we got, have good numbers, quantitative numbers on more petty crimes, but I suspect, as a speculation, that the costs are huge. Just look at how much we spend with private security relative to advanced countries. And that's not the most important part of the cost. I think the most part of the costs are borne by the, uh, the poor that are mostly victimized, but at least with Brazilian data that, that I know better, are mostly victimized by violence, not necessarily property crime. As a social phenomenon, uh, crime and violence are uh, huge in Latin America, and we know, very, we, know, we know little if we take into account the importance of the phenomenon. I think this is just a convoluted way to say that I, I don't know how to answer your question very precisely, but we suspect that the costs are huge. They're mostly home-brewed by the inability of our states to provide security. Uh, from a historical perspective, obviously, you have to take into account the rapid ur urbanization of Latin America, uh, the demographics that came with the demographic bonuses that are criminogenic. Sometimes we forget that. I mean, I, I am part of the, the demographic bonus. We are part of the demographic bonus in Latin America. If you look at how fast urbanization went in Latin America compared to the U.S. and Europe, you would expect a burst of violence uh, produced by that amount of density in urban urbanization. Along with that, uh, the way out of uh, authoritarian regimes that delegitimatized uh, police forces a lot, that cer that's certainly true in Brazil. Those are the root causes that I believed, that I believe that explain in general, but when you see the variability across countries and different uh, experiences, I think it's mostly our inability to have a capable rule of law at this point. So. I am a little to blame on the rhetoric, so I, I do mea culpa on that, on the shifting the blame northward. And I think it, it does have part of the blame for some countries, but most, most mostly it, it's our own, our own doing. So, and last question, I'll, I'll let you guys go. Because you talk about, you know, it's easier to estimate some of these things in terms of homicides. And one thing that I've struggled working in this sphere from sort of a social perspective is that, in general, the metric that is used is homicides. But there is so much more. Are there any other metrics that you will think are important to bring to the table that is not just... Homicides are obviously an important metric, but are there any other metrics to measure levels of crime and violence that may help us estimate costs? Sure. Or the only one that I use for, for Latin American data, especially Brazilian, is uh, car theft, because it's okay. fairly well reported okay. for, for several reasons. We don't need to dwell into that. I, I think we can use victimization data. They are useful, and we have quite a lot of data on that that, that is useful uh, and to try and back up some of the costs of violence. I don't think we need to convince society that the cost of violence is much more of a rhetoric to convince society that this is a problem. I think society is convinced... The real, the, the real conundrum here is why public policy hasn't responded as strongly as, as it has responded, for, for instance, with cash transfer programs 
with expanded in, with in health systems in Latin America that we see, or in education, that we see a lot of spending. And we compare it to spending in security, it, uh, it's dwarfed by those other accounts. This is a real conundrum from a political economy point of view. The only way that I can make uh, any sense of it is that violence mostly victimizes the poor and property crime would, that would victimize the rich. The rich have a certain cheap way of getting away with it, with gated communities, with private security. Uh, that's the only way that I can rationalize it. Well, thank you, Joao, and, and thank, thank you, you, Daniel and Stephen. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.